0: 1 <laughs> John chapter 5 looking at verses 13 to 17 I write these things to you who believe in the name of son of god so that you may know that you have eternal life This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Now, if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Oh, my. We'll get there. This morning, we begin the final conclusion of John's first letter to the churches, and we'll wrap it up next Sunday. This has been an amazing study for me because this is the first time that I've dug so deeply into First John, and I've learned so much myself. I've been really encouraged myself, and I hope you have. We began this series of messages, and I entitled it, Certainties in Times of Uncertainty. As you know, we live in a time of uncertainty, huge uncertainty in our world today where nothing seems to be certain anymore. Everyone has their own truth and are are encouraged to believe anything they want. They've come to believe that good is bad and bad is good and they live accordingly. You know, we know that young children need boundaries as they grow up. And though they fight and fuss and try to uh, break those boundaries, and you as a child did it, your parents, uh, all the parents here, they, they know that's what's happened. Those boundaries, unknown to them at the time, actually give them a sense of security and certainty. Our society has destroyed all boundaries, And we now have adult children running amok, totally confused, creating mayhem, wondering if there is any sort of truth at all. One of the results of all this confusion and uncertainty has been a continuing rise in suicide. In 2022, we reached one of the highest points of suicide in the history of our country. 50,000 people in America committed suicide. Only during World War I and the Great Depression were the rates higher. We need certainty in our lives. And that's why it's so important to always, always be in God's Word because therein lies truth and certainty. The Bible is a divine revelation that's filled with absolute certainty. Let, let me throw out just a few of them. I guess, certainly can't do all of them. There's it just, just way too many. All the way back to Numbers chapter 32, we are told, you may be sure that your sin will find you out. Have you ever thought, "Where is?" That? I know it's in the Bible somewhere. That's all the way back in Numbers thirty-two twenty-three. In Psalm 19, the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. The Bible is certain. Proverbs 11 tells us that the one who sows righteousness reaps a sure reward. Job 34 gives us confidence that God certainly will not act wickedly and the Almighty will not pervert pervert justice. Isaiah 53 says, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Peter said in John chapter 6, We are certain that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, greatest certainty that we can have. In Jesus' prayer to his Father in John 17, he says, They knew with certainty that I came from you. Romans 2, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. There are so many Certainties, a promise of salvation is sure in Romans 4. The foundation of God is sure in 2 Timothy 2. Christ is a sure anchor in the presence of God, Hebrews 6. The prophetic message is something completely reliable, Peter says in 2 Peter 1. And in Revelation 22, 20, Jesus said what? Surely I come quickly. We as believers deal in certainties in an uncertain world. And that's a problem for our uncertain world, isn't it? It's gotten to the point that it's offensive to people to say that you are certain about something, much less about everything. It's really an intolerable position to take, <laughs> but it's the truth. We have that certainty. We are certain how the universe began. We are certain how it's going to end. We are certain why God created and how His purpose in the beginning will all come together in the end. We're certain about why people behave the way they behave. We're certain about what is right and what is wrong, what it takes to make for good human relationships, what is necessary to go to heaven. We're certain that there is, there is a hell and certain about how people get there. We are certain about all those things certain about God's promises certain about his son the savior certain about his substitutionary death his literal, literal resurrection which we're going to be celebrating shortly certain about his second coming we are absolutely certain God has given us certainty about our future place in heaven with him forever in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 when you believed you were marked in him with a seal the promised holy spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, until the redemption of those who are God's possession. God deals in certainties. And he has bound himself. He has bound himself by his word to those certainties. And he has guaranteed his word in the gift of the Holy Spirit, whose temple we are as believers. And so as John begins the conclusion of his letter, he wants to reiterate to his readers and for us the certainties that are uh, ours in Christ. And if we were to read verses 13 through the end of the chapter, and if you did some counting, you would find the word no repeated seven times, and the word confidence. Now, with verse 12 that we ended with last week, John ended the formal argument of his letter when he wrote, Whoever has a son of life, whoever, uh, excuse me, whoever has a son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. That was the whole basis of writing his whole letter, so you would know that. And then he summarizes his purpose in verse 13 I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And as we've seen throughout this letter, he's been giving tests that identify the true and false believers. And believers who study this letter and come to the conclusion that they pass, can come to the conclusion, excuse me, that they pass the test. How? They believe the right things about themselves as sinners. We are truly sinful. They believe the right things about Jesus Christ as Savior. They manifest obedience to the Word of God. That's the direction of their life. And they demonstrate love for Him and love for others. We've repeated that, or John's repeated that, over and over again throughout his letter. And John says here, this is why I've written this. I want you to know. And he uses the word, actually, uh, he uses the word know actually 39 times in these five chapters in, in his letter. I want you to be certain. I want you to be confident. God has has spoken, and what God has spoken is true. And if we know what he said, then we know what is true. It's that simple. We don't speculate. We don't hope. We are certain. That's why Paul writes to Timothy and can say to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Paul says, I know and I am convinced. And John wants us all to know and be convinced. So in John's conclusion, from verse 13 to the end of the chapter, he gives five certainties upon which we can stand and upon which we can have full assurance. Five certainties, five things that we know. And we're going to look at the first two this morning, and then we're going to wrap up the others next Sunday. Number one, we know we have eternal life. Look at verse 13 again. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. When he says, I write these things to you, he's referring back to his whole letter. It's not just a few verses before. Everything he's been writing in this letter culminates here. Can you know? Of course. Of course. John says, that's why I wrote this epistle. Measure yourself against the tests. If you pass the test, verse 13 says, you may know you have eternal life. If someone were, come up to you, were to come up to you today and say, when you die, are you sure you're going to heaven? Would your immediate response be, absolutely? I hope so. I was reading about an instance when John MacArthur was having an interview with the late uh, Larry King. And after the interview off-air, Larry King asked him, do you have any fear of death? John MacArthur says, "Uh, I have no fear of death. And he said, you don't have any fear of death? MacArthur said, well, you know, I, I have a normal antipathy toward pain, and so I would like to minimize pain in dying, but just just kind of a normal thing. But death itself, no, I don't have any fear of death. He said, well, how is it that you have no fear of death? And MacArthur said, because I know exactly where I'm going to go. I'm going to go to heaven. And Larry King asked, and you're sure you're going to go? He says, absolutely sure. And Larry's response to him was, I wish I had that faith. I wish I had that faith. Do you have that faith? John says we can. Well, we know that faith comes by hearing the message of Jesus Christ, right? And believing it. These Christians to whom John wrote had been shaken by false teachers, they had been shaken by Antichrist. They were insecure. They were therefore lost, they had lost their confidence. In the ongoing forgiveness, they had lost their joy. And so John has gone uh, gone back and said, look, examine yourself. If you're walking in the light as he is in the light, then you're in the fellowship. If you're confessing your sin, then you're the one whom he is forgiving If you're obeying the commands of Christ, if you're loving God and loving others and not loving the world, if you're confessing Jesus as God, if you're practicing righteousness, if you're experiencing the internal confident witness of the Holy Spirit, then you can be sure. Don't listen to those false teachers anymore. And so so the first certainty is that we have eternal life. Now, what do you usually think when you hear the term eternal life? Life forever, right? With God in heaven. And that's true. But there's really a lot more than that. It's not just a time thing. Take a look at verse 20 a minute. We'll be looking at that a little bit closer next week, but it's describing Jesus Christ. And he says, He is the true God and eternal life. He is the eternal life. So eternal life is living forever with God. That's that's true. But that's the result, that's the consequence, that's the benefit. But it's more than that, it's possessing the very life of God that was possessed by Christ himself. Someone used a light bulb as an illustration. Just, just a light bulb by itself is not the light. I mean, you can carry around a light bulb, There's no, no, no light's going to come out of that thing. But light comes into the bulb and illuminates it. And we're like that light bulb, bulb and we contain his life like a light bulb contains light and it's his light, it's his life in us that illuminates us. But we've got a problem. Though we have that light, it's not shining as brightly as it once will. We've got this old flesh that's dimming that light. Our bodies are not yet glorified. Remember when Jesus was up on the Mount of Transfiguration with James, John, Peter? For a moment, Jesus pulled back, as it were, his humanness. We talked about that back in Matthew. And they saw the fullness of his glory. And that's why John wrote, we have seen his glory. That's what he's referring to. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. That one must have been an amazing moment for them. One commentator wrote, someday... When we leave this mortal flesh and enter into the glorious manifestation of the children of God, we will become absolutely transparent, crystal clear bulbs through which the power of eternal life will flow to radiate throughout all eternity. One day we will have that same glorified body. In John 17, the great high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed in the third verse, he says, now this is eternal life, that they know you, Only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It's exactly what we read here in the passage in 1 John. God and Christ are the eternal life, they are the power of eternal life. And, And to say that we have eternal life is simply to say that we literally have the life of God in us. It's already true, it's already there. We already possess that life. That's why we love God, that's why we love others, that's why we don't love the world. That's why we have a heart desire to be obedient to God. That's why we desire righteousness and we hate sin because that life is already in us, the very life of God. This is not about a duration of life, it's about a quality of life. A kind of life we have now and will forever have the life of God in us, holy and pure and righteous and good and content and satisfied and fulfilled. Eternal life is a life that lacks nothing. It wants nothing. It misses nothing. It desires nothing other than what it already has. It's God's life in us. We already have it. And what he says, that you may know that you have eternal life. John wants us to be certain about that. You know, it boggles my mind, that whole concept. I, I can't comp- comprehend it all. Just can't. But I, what I do know is I received it when I received Christ and made Him Lord of my life. I've got it, even if I don't understand it all. God sent His Son into the world that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have what? Eternal life. That's exactly what verse 13 says. If you believe in the name of the Son of God, you may know that you have eternal life. Same thing, John three sixteen and and uh, 1 John 5, 13 God's life is in Christ, and all of Christ's life is in us. Frankly, that's an astonishing reality. There's one of the passages I want to look at quickly in this context, and that's Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Paul is praying to the Father for the Ephesian believers, and therefore for us as well. And he says, For this reason I kneel before the Father. From whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being. I pray, he says, for believers who already have the Holy Spirit, who already have the life, who already have that eternal life, I pray that they may be strengthened by the indwelling Spirit. Then verse 17 says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The word used to dwell means, means to dwell, to settle in, to inhabit, to pervade, to prompt, to guide, to govern. Paul prays that Christ will so work in our lives that we will be pure enough for Christ just to settle down and be at home and take over. He says, I want the Spirit to work in your hearts. I want Christ to clean up things and then find a place that he can rest in and he can live in and dwell in and work in so that we will be rooted and grounded in love. Why? Verse 18, that they may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp to comprehend, to really understand how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What he's basically saying is the whole Trinity is in you. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about Christ. He's talking about the fullness of God. The whole Trinity dwells in us. All that the Spirit is is there to strengthen us. All that Christ is is there to cleanse us and to purify us. All that God is is there to fill us with His fullness. Paul wants us to grasp that concept, to get a grip on this unimaginable, incomprehensible privilege of of, of possessing that eternal life. And then he launches into that amazing doxology of praise in verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Who is the him? That's God in his fullness. God the Father, God the Spirit, God God the Son. Not only, excuse me, now to, to the one who can not only do what we think, he can also do what we ask Not only what we ask or think, but all we ask or think. And not only all we ask or think, but beyond all we ask or think. And not just beyond it all, but abundantly beyond it all. And not just abundantly beyond it all, but exceeding abundantly beyond it all. Wow! (laughs) This is amazing. According to his power. And we would expect him to say, that is in him. But he doesn't. He says, according to his power, that is at work within us. That's how eternal life. His power. That folks is the reality of eternal life that we now possess. It's that the Trinity lives in us. We possess the very life of God. And it's that power of the Trinity that works within us. It works to our salvation. It works to our sanctification. It works to our endurance, our ministry, our usefulness, our service, our evangelism. It works to the benefit of our prayer life. Everything we do is reflective of that power. That's why John writes there in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe the name of the Son of God, that you may know all of this, that you may know that you have eternal life and all that entails. It has to start with that certainty, the certainty of eternal life, because that certainty then leads to the second certainty that John mentions. We know God answers our prayers. Verse 14 and 15, this is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what he asked for. It says we have confidence and we know and we know. We have a confidence that whatever it is we ask according to his will, he hears and if we know that he hears, and that speaks to the whole issue of doubting, doesn't it? If we know that he hears, then we know he will answer. Do you know what the number one meaning of confidence, the, word, the, the Greek word for confidence is? In the Greek dictionary, freedom of speech. Isn't that interesting? Literally, and I quote from the dictionary, Greek dictionary, freedom in speaking, unreservedness in speech. We should feel a freedom to go before the Lord on any issue and freely and boldly ask. That's the confidence we should have. We've even instru- we're even instructed in Scripture to come boldly to the throne of God to seek what we need. Last week we mentioned that one of the testimonies of God at the cross was a tearing of the temple curtain in front of the Holy of Holies from top to bottom. That's why we have the confidence that, that's why we have that freedom to go before God and speak to Him into His presence and freely request whatever we need in His name. And if we ask anything according to His will, okay, let's stop there a second. I'm not going to belabor this point because, because we've, we've heard what that is all about. But there's a lot of people, and I think even believers, they stop at, if you ask anything. And so they do. Then they wonder why God doesn't answer easy to forget and perhaps ignore the according to his will part and how do we know his will by knowing scripture and it's not just tagging on in jesus name and hope for the best we need to know scripture if we don't know scripture we end up asking for a lot of stuff about which god has already spoken See, he's not like us as parents. (laughs) When your child comes up to you and says, Daddy or Mommy, can I? I No. They go away and they come back. Can I? What did I already say? No. Yeah, no. (laughs) Then they come back again. And they come back again. And if they do it often enough, we finally give up and say, Oh, fine, whatever. Just stop bugging me, right? That's not God. God doesn't do that. See, God doesn't waste his time responding to something he's already said. And he's not going to change his mind. He's already spoken in Scripture and it's up to us to find and know what he said. So if we ask anything according to his will, what happens? He hears us. He hears us, and hearing here means more than listening and knowing. Yeah, I, I, I heard a noise out there. You know, we, we have that in relationships. Right? Yeah, I heard your voice. I have no idea what you said, but I heard you. But the hearing is knowing the request. It's a positive hearing. He's going to pay attention to it. It's a hearing that's going to dispatch the right answer. Verse 15, and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask... We know that we have what we asked of Him. Do you re- realize that's a blank check that God has written out to us? But there's a caveat. If we know, if we know, that speaks to the confidence we should have, the faith that we should have, the certainty that we should have. That's what, John's, what John is hitting over and over again on that concept of certainty. Gotta know. James speaks to this in James 1, verse 6, when he writes very clearly, But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from God. Because you don't really believe it's going to happen. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. James also talks about the prayer offered in Faith. And just a side note, you know, th- these promises that John is talking about are being made to God's people. They're being made to God's people. He's writing these letters to believers, to those who believe in the Lord Jesus, who love the Lord and are obedient to the Lord. There are a lot of people out there who throw up prayers oftentimes in moment of crisis. Then they um, that they're, 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 they want to kind of use God in their time of trouble right but only in those times then they double down their belief that God doesn't exist because he doesn't answer prayers see i knew it listen God is under no obligation to answer their prayers because they don't believe in him they don't love him they don't obey him does he answer sometimes yeah he does in his sovereignty As he draws them to himself, but that's all totally up to him. He's not obligated. But these promises in this letter are for believers, it's for you and I, and our lives and our minds need to be in the right place. Back in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 7, we we have Jesus' own words If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it'll be done for you. Here's that same blank check. Ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you if you abide in me. That is, if you share my life and my truth is living uh, in in you, and, and you are living accordingly. Way back in Psalm chapter 37, verse 4, we read, Take delight in the Lord, and he'll give the desires of your heart. He wants to do that. He's saying the same thing as John here in the New Testament. In Psalm 66, verse 18, it says, If I had cherished sin in my heart... The Lord would not have listened. That's what James is talking about in chapter 5. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effect, effective. In the unrighteous, not so much. How are we righteous? By remaining in Christ. In Christ's words, remaining in us. Listen, and this is good for us to keep in mind. When the believer prays in the name of Jesus, and according to his will, God has obligated himself to answer. It's in his word he has promised. This is Christian certainty. Now John illustrates the extent of the expansiveness of God's answers to prayer in a very unusual way. Look at verse 16. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I've referred to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. Now, I would have just as soon just let's let's skip that and keep keep on going. What in the world is John talking about here? This is a little side note. You need to keep this in mind. It's a little side note for John. It's a clarification on God's answering of prayer. What John is saying is that God will answer all of our prayers, which are consistent with His name and consistent with His will, except one. Except one. In other words, the final decision has, excuse me, and and, and that, that one is that if you're praying for somebody who's committed sin leading to death, In other words, the final decision has already been made by God as to the future of that person, and there's nothing that's going to change it. Now keep in mind the context of our passage here. John here is giving us the only exception to the rule. The point John is making is that apart from that one thing, you can ask for anything. That's his main point here in this passage. You can ask for anything according to his will, and he'll answer. He's saying that we, we know he hears... And if we know He hears, we know He answers. And the only exception is that if the final final decision has already been made by God about the future of that person and their death. And therefore, all of our prayers in regard to that person have no possibility of being heard and answered. So, inquiring minds want to know, what is that sin that leads to death? Well, there are two possibilities, and I believe only two, and I think that there is a case for both. Number one, this refers to the sin of a non-Christian that leads to eternal death. What is a sin? It's total rejection of Jesus Christ. Total rejection of Jesus Christ. We talked some about that last week. If you reject the truth, you're calling God a liar, right? And there's no coming back from that. In 1 John 2, Who is a liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is a Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. God, in His sovereignty, knows when a person has hardened their heart to the point of no return. And therefore, it's not worth our time and effort to pray for that person. So, how do we know when that time is that I need to stop praying for someone? We don't. We don't, so we keep on praying. (laughs) It's God in his sovereignty that has that decision. Last week, we saw one of the three testimonies of God himself was the Holy Spirit, right? The Spirit is truth. And in Matthew 12, verse 32, Jesus told the Pharisees, Anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit, who is absolute truth, will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. There it is. That's pretty definitive. So how do we know when that time comes? It's not up to us. And that's not the point of John's, that John is making here. The point is there is a sin that leads to death, and that's in God's hands. And we just need to leave it in God's hands. We just need to do our part. Now, the other possibility, and I think this is probably where John is focusing his attention because he's writing to believers, is that he's talking about a true Christian because he's writing to the believers in the church, a true brother or sister in Christ who commits a sin for which God takes their life. In this scenario it isn't eternal death that we're talking about this is physical death it can't be because we are it can't be eternal death because we are eternally secure right nothing can separate us we've talked about that often so is this actually possible could that happen did it ever happen it did happened in the Corinthian church 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you know that passage we, talk, we often read about with the communion service? It says, There were some people who came to the Lord's table, and they came with such shallowness, with such hypocrisy and superficiality, and not an honest and heartfelt dealing with their sin, that they abused the Lord's table. And Paul says, quote, Because of this, some of you have died. Physically. I believe God slew some people there was Ananias and Sapphira remember them in Acts 5 God took their lives because they publicly lied to the Holy Spirit in front of the whole church now you may be thinking well what is this sin I want to know so I don't commit it (laughs) answer It is any sin that the Lord determines is is enough for him to take a believer out. It's not any one particular sin. John nor any other writer said this is the sin. It's that sin at that time in that place that compromises the church and the testimony of Christ to the degree that he actually removes that believer to protect the church and other believers. You see, it's not so much a punishment for the believer as it is a protection for the church. It's protection for the integrity and purity of the gospel and the witness of the church. Frankly, there's been situations I've seen in churches that I'm I'm amazed that God did something other than take them out. And just to make sure we don't start thinking that some sin is less serious than other sin, you know, the one that leads to death, John states in verse 17, all wrongdoing, and the word means unrighteousness of heart and life. All wrongdoing, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Folks, you and I are proof of that, right? And that fact alone shows God's grace and mercy. But know that God hates all sin. All sin is rebellion against God, and God hates it all. So what's John point, John's point in even mentioning this? If we go back to verse 16 a second. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray, and God will give them life. He's saying, don't give up praying. Don't give up praying. It's not up to us to determine. If a person has committed a sin that leads to death, that's not, that's not our decision. That's all on God and his sovereignty. Our responsibility is to pray. But John doesn't want us to get sidetracked here by trying to figure out what that sin might be. So don't get hung up on that point. It's a side note for John. It's not for us to determine. If we're living in Christ, if we're abiding in Christ, we don't have to worry about it. It's not something to go to bed at night and say, boy, I hope I haven't committed that sin. It shouldn't even have to cross our minds. John wants us to focus on prayer and the fact that God answers. God answers. He wants us to focus on the certainties, things that we absolutely know and upon which we can stand. And what are those? Well, the first two? We have eternal life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And secondly. God answers prayer. This is the confidence. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of Him. Isn't that a great certainty? Both of those. Next week, we're going to wrap up First John and we'll look at the other three certainties that John comes out for us. Three more things that we absolutely know and that we can bet our life on. That we can walk proudly, we can walk confidently through life. And not get mixed up in all the uncertainties that are being thrown at us every single day in the world. Father, thank you that you are a sure God. I just can't imagine the millions of people around the world that are searching for these certainties. And they're trying this God, and they're trying that God, and they're trying this, this philosophy, and they're, they're trying this practice, and, and they're do- doing everything except coming to the answer. <laughs> everything except where the truth is actually found. And even though they're so strongly adamant about what they believe, Father, in the the core of their heart, there has to be that uncertainty because there is no satisfaction, there is no certainty, there is no joy, there is no fulfillment without Christ. You created us that way. Father, I pray that we would not only rejoice in the certainties of our eternal life, and the certainties that we can come to you at any moment, and uh, as we're searching Scripture and we see what, what you're saying, and we pray accordingly, and we know that you're going to answer us, no doubt in our minds. Father, I pray that we would just not be satisfied in that, but we would, you would give us that desire, that burden, to share those certainties with those that are out there that are searching that are confused, that are uncertain. Father, I pray that you do new work in our life. Give us a new vision for what you want to do in people's lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.